Hello, my name is Susan. I'm here to read the scripture. Uh, I've just been coming to Cicillano for two years recently, um, but also 18 plus years ago, I remember being in an evangelical free church in Oakland, and I remember being there when we laid hands on Jody and Andrew and the whole bunch of the people there to keep come out here and, and to this part of the Bay Area, <laughs> slightly different place. So I, I just remembered that, and I just felt like I wanted to share that, and God's faithfulness to you all for 18 years and to other people as well. So we are here for the scripture. And I just got a new phone with a new password. So it's my privilege to read 1 Corinthians 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is God's word. Thanks, Susan, for that remembrance. Yeah, that was special. And you were there. Beautiful. It's great. I was, um, my heart is full. I, I didn't anticipate this. And Martin, you almost wrecked me uh, when you prayed. Uh, I just feel such love for you, Martin. And I feel that way with each one of you when I have the blessing and the privilege to be in your presence and to hear about your lives and the way that Jesus is moving in your life. I was at, uh, took a quick trip down to... Uh, my mom's house and dad's house uh, last week on Friday and Dave went with me and um, was going through all the files, you know, 62 years of marriage and uh, all their files. And there was a file that had my name on it and I was searching through it and um, I pulled out this, there in, the, in the back of it was this little bookmark, which is, comes from the first days of Solano Community Church. We, we put these out. We gave everybody to put this in their Bible. Here's what it says. Solano Community Church is a place where curious people can thoroughly explore the person and claims of Jesus Christ while being loved and respected. A place where kids can develop the tools that will lead to faith while they have fun and bask in the warmth of loving adults. A place where people from all races, walks, backgrounds, and ages gather under the name of Jesus Christ to worship through prayer, the study of scripture, singing, and the sharing of communion. A place where small groups of friends gather together in homes for encouragement and further instruction in scripture so that nobody has to feel like they are on this journey alone. A place where every, every person is cherished and recognized as being gifted by God to have a significant role in the building up of the body of Christ, the church, so that together we might experience the full extent of God's grace. And lastly, a place where God, when, when God looks, a place where when God looks down and sees the gift of his grace being shared openly and freely, he says to himself, I am pleased. And by God's grace, uh, we have been living into that vision, I think, for these 18 years. And sometimes we hit it, sometimes we miss it. 
but uh, by his grace, we continue to be carried forward towards it more and more uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that today in in this beautiful passage we've been given that uh, Susan read for us. And so I'm excited to share that with you. Um, I'm going to dive right in. This is one of those short passages where I thought, oh, there's not enough material here uh, for me to, you know, make a whole sermon out of. And then by the end, I'm like cutting and hacking and and all that stuff. So I'm going to jump right in. uh, And I want to draw your attention in this text. Uh, Actually, I'm going to pray. Lord, would you be with us as we (laughs) look at this word? Um, It's just so important that what happens here in this moment um, be the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through your word. Um, and so we, we present ourselves to you. I present myself to you. We present ourselves to you. And we invite you to use this, to draw together the, the beautiful themes of this morning already, your faithfulness and our focus on the gospel. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, So the Apostle Paul in this text says something uh, that was controversial then and that has become controversial now. It's this, uh, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And to one segment of Christians, uh, a statement like this means you don't talk about anything other than Christ and him crucified. And so uh, churches coming from this perspective will, will not teach on, for example, uh, social issues like politics or sexual, sexual ethics or race or a number of other topics. Um, and the problem with this approach is that you can end up with some wildly inconsistent uh, faith practices within the community of the church. So uh, probably the most egregious example of this comes from you know, the days of slavery and it's well known that when uh, they would invite preachers to come to speak to the slaves, they would tell them that you are only allowed to preach about salvation and you can't talk about any passages in the Old Testament that have to do with freedom for slaves or justice or anything like that. You only are allowed to preach about eternal salvation. They would tell them that that's the only thing that they could talk about. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, is this what Paul means when he says uh, he intended uh, among them to know only Christ crucified? So that's one extreme. On the other extreme, you would have um, churches so engrossed in social issues uh, that the message of Christ crucified um, fades into the background, and that's a lot of what I experienced growing up, uh, that the issues of social justice were to the forefront in the church context that I was in, and the, the issue of Christ crucified was receded, faded way to the background. Um, and so, you know, this becomes kind of a controversial issue, within, and, and within the American church, I think, of late, we've really been grappling with this because of uh, certain things that have been happening socially within our, our culture and our world. It's sort of pressed this question, you know, when should we speak about social issues? When should we just preach cru- Christ crucified? And where do we draw the lines between those two? Or, or are these two issues even opposed to each other? Is this a false dichotomy? And so I'm so grateful because today we're going to answer all those questions. Um, Maybe. We have the Apostle Paul, thankfully, and we have Jesus to help us. And we're going to do what we can to grapple with, I think, is what is is a fairly uh, interesting and really significant 
important topic for us today as we look forward into the next 18 years, however long God gives us. Uh, and I'm going to argue this uh, from 1 Corinthians 1, excuse me, 2, uh, 1 through 5, that uh, along with the rest of the context around it, because you, you can't take this, this passage out of the context around it. So I'm going to argue that along with the, the context that it's in, this passage tells us three things. First of all, the gospel, Christ crucified, the gospel is the center. The gospel is the center. Secondly, that the gospel has implications. The gospel has implications. And then thirdly, that the gospel brings its own power. The gospel brings its own power. All right, so let's jump right in. The gospel is the center. And I want to argue this statement is both logically sound and relationally appropriate. It's logically sound and relationally appropriate. Logic first. From a logic standpoint, you'd have to say that uh, if anything in this world matters, right? If you kind of say, okay, what matters most in the world? Let's sort of dig into that question from a logical standpoint. What matters most? Fundamentally, you would have to say that first of all, creation matters most. If you don't have creation, you have nothing. And secondly, you'd have to say that redemption matters most. Creation, that, that we exist, and then when things went sideways, that there was a way for things to be redeemed. We were looking in the Gospel Academy cohort this week at the Bible, and the Bible, do you know, breaks down into those two themes. Genesis 1 through 11 is creation. Genesis 12 to the very end of the book of Revelation is redemption. Those are the two big themes of the world. First, there is a world. Secondly, when it gets wrecked, there is a means for bringing it back into rightness. That's redemption. Physical things, relationships, social causes, all of those are lost. They're without redemption. So for real absolute redemption to occur, we've got to dig into this for a moment, there must be what the Bible calls atonement. For real redemption to occur, there must be atonement. For whatever reason related to the nature of creation, this is in the realm to me of mystery, of the way that God made things. For whatever reason related to creation itself, this is sort of as C.S. Lewis calls in the Chronicles of Narnia, he calls this like the deep magic of the world that God created. For whatever reason, in order for there to be perfect redemption, there has to be perfect atonement, shedding of blood. That's just built into the fabric of the universe that God created, okay? So that's where we start. For there to be perfect redemption, there has to be perfect atonement. I wanna take you to Romans 3, verses 23 through 26. When one of my professors talked about this passage, he said, you know, if you had the center of the Bible, you know, you say the New Testament, the center of the New Testament would be the book of Romans. The center of the book of Romans would be this passage right here. Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that's a word having to do with atonement, by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, and this is what I want you to clue in, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in this universe, we cry for justice, right? 
But nobody can bring about justice uh, without the perfect atonement. So God figured out a way both to uphold justice and then for those of us who who fall short of justice, every single one of us, because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he figured out a way to justify us. It's both of those. There's justice in the universe. It's upheld. And we can be justified all in one act in Jesus Christ. So that's the logic of redemption. That the world, after being created, had fallen apart, was broken, and has been redeemed in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That's still unfolding. It will come to full fruition in the future. In Christ, God maintains his own perfect justice while also justifying those who have acted unjustly, you and me and anybody else who willingly will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Without this, you have creation, but no redemption. And so all is lost. And so why would you even talk about other things like relationships and physical things and social justice and on and on and on the list would go? We might as well just eat and drink for tomorrow we die without redemption. So logically, the gospel message of Christ crucified is the center. Without it, very little else Nothing else matters in an ultimate sense. But the gospel is also the center from a relational standpoint. And here it becomes kind of emotional. This is where it starts to, for me, it starts to grab my heart. So that's the logical side. And then this is the part where it starts to grab my heart. For atonement to be made, someone had to love us very much. For atonement to be made, someone had to love us very much. Why? Because hanging on a cross and taking on the sins of the world is a horrendous task. Understatement. I used to, just to let you in my conversation with Jesus and how immature it can be at times. Um, I used to say in moments of deep suffering, uh, Lord, how come Jesus could do all his suffering in six hours on the cross. And I got to suffer day after day after day. I used to say this to the Lord. And I prayed about it and thought about it for a while. And then I felt like the Lord showed me something very that ministers to me very powerfully. Is that suffering has two vectors. It's not just the length of suffering. It's the depth of suffering. It's not just the length of suffering. It's the depth of suffering. And... Some of the most traumatic suffering that anybody, think about the people in your life that have suffered traumatically. Sometimes the actual moment of suffering is very short, but the trauma associated with it lingers on for for a long, long time, right? So suffering has a length and it it has kind of a depth. And Jesus, this is the point, Jesus, Andrew, when you're thinking those thoughts about the length of your suffering, what you don't understand is that actually Jesus went deeper in suffering than you'll ever have to go, or even that you'll even begin to touch. Just imagine every atrocious act coursing through your heart, mind, and soul as your body hangs on a cross with nails pierced into your flesh. I'm sorry that that's graphic, but the gospel is graphic. That the cross, this is what the Bible teaches us. Every lie, every malicious glance ever cast in the history of the world coursing through you in that moment as you are on the cross. Every theft and the underlying heart that made it possible. Every rape, every torment, every murder, and every thought 
that anybody ever thought that was even leaning in that direction, all of that trauma, all of that sin, all of that evil coursing through you as you hang on the cross. That's how deep Jesus Christ went on the cross to bring about redemption of a broken, fallen world. And that's how much he loves you. To be willing to go there on your behalf. And that love, which Jesus expressed in that moment, becomes the very definition of a kind of love that was always intended to spread outward from the cross and infect every relationship in the world. That was God's intention. Because without all that, nothing matters in an eternal sense. And that's why Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The gospel is the center. And then I'll later say things like this that are very powerful. I'll say Philippians uh, 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Galatians 1.8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. He says that twice. You know, parchment was expensive. He writes it twice. Uh, It's a rare thing. Uh, He writes it twice because it's it's such a powerful statement. And then as he's in Romans, going through from where we initially saw all the way to Romans 11 and explaining the gospel and the impact of the gospel, um, he says at the end of it, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The gospel is the center. When it comes on the scene, you know, you just sort of stop everything else and focus on it. The other night we were sitting in our house, I guess it was Friday, and we got a text from one of our adult children, and it seemed like maybe this was an important moment. And so we quickly called, you know, speakerphone, the two of us calling, and it turns out it was. It was one of those key moments in life where we could be there to help process something heavy and very significant. And in that moment, everything else fell away, right? The food that had been cooking for Jody and I to have a nice little date together, doesn't matter if it gets cold. The movie that we were gonna watch, the screen was down, it was all prime, ready to go. Doesn't matter, let that go. Our Airbnb guest who came home and walked through the living room, ignored him. Sorry, Tobias. <laughs> uh, because why? Because that moment, we needed to focus on what was most important. And that's what was most important. The gospel is like that. It comes into the world like that. Everything else takes shape in light of the gospel. The gospel is the center. It's the center. But the gospel has implications for everything else. That's the second point. The gospel has implications. The implications of the gospel touch onto every aspect of life. And this is why the Apostle Paul, and this is why I'm saying it's not just this text, it's the context around it. This is why the Apostle Paul, who in the very letter where he says he only intends among them to know Christ crucified, that's what he says there in verse two, will in fact talk about sexual ethics later on. which we would categorize as a social issue probably 
in our day. Uh, are sexual ethics the gospel? Mm, no. Are there implications related to our sexuality that stem from the gospel? Absolutely. You see this all throughout scripture. Uh, a similar thing happens in the letter to the Ephesians where what today we would call race relations is addressed. Are race relations the gospel? No. Does the gospel have implications for how we approach race relations? Absolutely. And I think it's easier for us to see it here in this text in Ephesians as relates to race relations and then to start to transpose and think about how in the, in the coming weeks and months Paul's going to lead us into this conversation about sexual ethics all reframed by the gospel, by this knowing Christ crucified only. So let's, let's look and see how it happens in Ephesians um, you know, uh, that race relations inhabit the space right next to the gospel and the factor into the, the implications of the gospel. So I'm just going to read this text from Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we're in that atonement realm right there. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, which would be the primary race distinction at that time. And that has been broken down by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross by abolishing, verse 15, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See, it just pops off the page. You can see the implications of the gospel for the way that different uh, ethnicities, different groups come together and are made one through the gospel. For through him, continuing on in verse 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, speaking to the Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. An implication is a consequence of something. One way to think of this is, is like the gospel is this heavy stone that gets dropped into the waters of creation. And as it splashes, it sends out waves that touch and move and even transform Everything that ends up in its wake. Or I, I, I almost think it's more appropriate to flip it around and start with the gospel. And, and what you end up seeing is how all the things of this world contribute to our understanding of the richness of the gospel. So that things like sexual ethics and race relations not only become healthy and beautiful in the shade of the gospel, something even more wonderful happens in light of the gospel. Social issues, and, and these are just two, there are so many concerns of our world, but social issues like race relations and sexual ethics become vessels that display the beauty of the gospel. 
They become vessels that display the beauty. They're made beautiful and they make the, the gospel beautiful. So, for example, human romance, which is the background of our sexual ethics, which we will get into as we continue to move forward in 1 Corinthians, because Paul goes there in a very thorough way in this book. Human romance, uh, which is the background, it just mirrors divine romance. And what is the divine romance? The divine romance is the relationship between Christ and the church, which is ultimately what God wants to speak to us about. But he's given us the mental furniture in this, this concept of human romance so that we're actually living it out in, in flesh and blood in real life. He's given us that possibility so that we can make the leap from what we understand to what we don't understand. Human romance, what we understand, to divine romance. If you lose that context, then all of the sexual ethics that come out of the Bible stop making sense. They seem strange and foreign to the world. But if you hold on to the divine romance, then they start making sense. So this is important background as we move forward. Uh, in this race relations mirror and manifest God's beautiful, all nations, heavenly vision. We've talked about this often, that the picture of heaven is that you would have all nations together before the throne, worshiping God. And that vision frames the way that we approach race relations in our world today. So, so is the gospel race relations? Well, no, not exactly. But the gospel has huge implications. In fact, in the text we read in the book of Ephesians, it's because of the gospel that we can have hope of a disparate groups of people coming together as one, made into a new humanity. So some could, you could say the same thing. Uh, we talked about race relations and sexual acts. You could say the same thing about uh, all the other issues that are oftentimes top of our mind. If we're looking at the news or having conversations around the watering hole or whatever it is, all of these different issues will have the same uh, approach. So the environment or gender differences or technology or work or the, you could fill in the blank for many other. If we start with the gospel, if the gospel's the center and then we start to think about what are the implications of the gospel for these other things, then we're gonna be standing in good stead. When viewed, viewed rightly, all of those other things become mirrors that reflect the glory and the goodness of God and his redemptive work. And, and one of the fun things about being church together, if we can continue to grow and learn how to do this well, is that we get to explore those questions. What, is, what, is, what are the implications of the gospel for this? What are the implications of the gospel for that? What are the implications of the gospel for this particular circumstance in my life? See, this is, this is the journey of life is continuing to preach and apply the gospel to each and every issue and moment that we experience in this life. And that's the joy of walking with God and learning to see God and know God on a deeper and deeper level at every stage of the way. This ability to reframe everything is part of the, what makes the gospel so powerful, which is the third point. The gospel brings its own power. 
And this is going to really make sense, this, this last point. So I've spent the entire sermon so far on verse 2 in trying to articulate why Paul could say something like verse 2 and it can make sense in their context and in our context as well. But there's a lot of other things in this short little passage and they're all sort of tied together around this power of the gospel. And so I think they're going to kind of fall into place in this last point. But when you're, when you're bringing the gospel, so if we understand that to be the significant, the gospel is a center and it has implications for everything. If we understand that framework, then the question is, okay, we're bringers. If, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're a bringer of the gospel to context that you inhabit, whether it be your own life, your family, your workplace, wherever it is. You're the bringer of the gospel to those places. And so we need to talk about that. And Paul's talking about it here. When you bring the gospel, here's a really important point that we need to hold on to. And I think that's going to be encouraging to you. And it's going to take some of the strain and the stress and the anxiety about being a bringer of the gospel. This is a really important point. You don't have to try to manufacture some impact on your hearers. When you bring the gospel, you don't have to try and manufacture some sort of impact on the people who are hearing you talk about the gospel. So the orators in Paul's day, we've talked about this throughout uh, the first two chapters here, is that they would come on the scene, you know, and they would try to make a big, they'd try to have a, the reputation precede them, they would go for the applause, they would go for, you know, the impact, all of this. And Paul, apparently, when he came to Corinth, he, he shunned all of those techniques of communication and he just spoke in a way that was humble and we'll see maybe a little bit unexpected. And the reason that he did that is because he didn't want anything to stand in the way of the gospel. He didn't want to, I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, um, you don't defend a lion. You let it out of a cage. You let it out of the cage. Now I want you to, just how absurd would it be if, okay, your, your charge is to defend the lion, is to, is to watch over the lion, and there's an elephant. I guess that's the only kind of predator of a lion, I don't know. Um, but you, the elephant is charging the lion, and you're like, oh no, I'll get in the middle of that and defend the lion, right? That would be utterly ridiculous. You would get out of the way and let the lion do its thing, right? Same is true with the gospel. And one of the ways that God gets us out of the way is through weakness and trembling, not plausible words, all these things that Paul talks about in the rest of the passage. And when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and listen to this, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So no lofty speech, no worldly wisdom, 
He didn't rely on those. Of course, both of those would have been, you know, what the Corinthians were used to. Whenever somebody stood up in the main area there and spoke, they would be used to lofty speech because that's how, that's the expectation. had. They would have been evaluating the speaker according to the loftiness of their speech and the wisdom that they brought to the subject. And Paul's just turning that on his head. He's saying you can't evaluate the gospel in that way. No plausible words. Some, now this word plausible, you'll see if you look at different translations, some will translate it persuasive, but I think plausible is probably better. And so what does that mean? What do you mean, Paul, that you didn't even speak in plausible words? Well, here's what it probably means. is because he stood up and he talked about a crucified Messiah. And that would not have been plausible. How could you have a king who dies on a cross? That doesn't make sense, Paul. And a lot of times when we go out and we're being bringers of the gospel, do you have this experience? I, I have this experience all the time. You just, you're thinking, you're listening to what you're saying through the ears of the person you're speaking to and you're like, oh man, this sounds not plausible. Right? Well, guess what? You're in good company. That's how Paul spoke. It, didn't, it wasn't plausible, seemingly. If you, had a, if you had that worldly view, it wasn't plausible. But as we'll see, the Holy Spirit has the power to penetrate through that and make what seems from a worldly perspective implausible to be plausible. Um, and as if that weren't bad enough, he, it says that he came in weakness and fear and trembling. And, you know, again, the orders of the day, they would show up, they would pay money to sort of advertise at the, at the banquets and make sure that everybody knew that they were going to be speaking the next day or what have you. They, they would make sure that their reputation, they were all about projecting confidence and cultivating their image. The, the people that Paul was comparing himself to. He's saying, I'm there in fear and trembling and weakness. And, and you probably, I, I, if you're like me, you experience weakness and fear and trembling and not, not plausible words at times. And, you, and, and that means you start to feel like, oh no, I should stop talking. But according to this, actually, that's when you keep going. That's exactly how the gospel comes. Why? So the people don't think you're cool. So they think that Jesus is cool and amazing and good and powerful. A similar thing happens. I think about this oftentimes. I'm like, you know, Friday night is sort of our Sabbath and we usually have a sort of date night on Friday night and we watch a movie or we'll watch like maybe a TV show or something. And then I'm thinking about Sunday coming up and I'm thinking all of you are watching this TV show as well. And, uh, you know, and I'm like, how in the world can we as a church ever compete with the communication that people are receiving in the world today. Um, you know, The Crown is starting on, what is it, Netflix, I guess? I think they spent $60 million on each episode. This is like season five, right? $60 million on each episode. That's like the orators of the day, right? They're telling stories powerfully. They have so many resources 
and we evaluate them on that. And then I'm like, Sunday morning, I mean, our big innovation is PowerPoint, right? <laughs> we bring PowerPoint. $60 million. We didn't spend $60 million for me to stand up here today. Um, we, you know, our big innovation is PowerPoint. How could we compete with the world? How could we ever compete with the world? We don't have the worldly wisdom. We don't have the depth. We don't have, you know, there wasn't 30 people writing this sermon today um, to make it as polished and perfect as it could be. Like, how can we compete with that? Well, we can't if we're using the worldly standards. But thankfully, there's something else that Paul has. There's something that we have as well. And that is this little phrase, demonstrations of the spirit and of power. Look at the text again. He says he didn't come with $60 million budget, writing an incredible script, saying things in a powerful way. He just came with implausible words in weakness and fear. What was his weakness and fear? We don't know exactly what his weakness and fear and trembling was, but probably he was, he was persecuted a lot in Corinth, so it could be that. It could have been that he just understood the gravity of what he was talking about, so it was weakness and fear, because this is so significant. This is the center of everything, right? And so he understood that. Um, we don't know, but we often come to this task with weakness and fear and trembling when it's incumbent upon us to share our faith, to share what we believe with others, we sense that weakness and fear and trembling. But what we do have, we don't have $60 million budget, but we have demonstrations of the spirit and of power. And what is that? It can't be miraculous signs because he said in the passages just before this that he doesn't come with miraculous signs. Now, it is true also throughout the New Testament, we have testimony of God doing miraculous things and that being part of the witness to the gospel. So we pray for that, we seek that, sometimes it happens. But at the end of the day, these demonstrations of power are not merely that, there's something more profound. There's something deeper. Demonstrations of spirit, of the spirit, of spiritual power is the way that the Corinthian church, when they heard the gospel, Christ crucified, were moved to respond in faith. Seems so simple and yet so profound. It's like when I've had this experience when the preacher is talking and you just feel like the preacher's talking directly to you. It's like when you open up scripture and the words of scripture leap off the page and they pierce into your heart in a way that just absolutely blows you away because it's exactly what you needed in, to hear in that moment. And the Holy Spirit is moving in spiritual power to apply those words of scripture into your heart just in the moment when you need it. That happened to me like three times this week. It was amazing. I'm so grateful for the spiritual power of the word of God and the Holy Spirit applying it. It's when your coworker is telling you about Jesus and it suddenly clicks like, oh, that makes sense. God's stirring in you. It's when it, you're, I love this, when you're in your home group and somebody says, they give testimony to how God has been working in their life and some powerful truth has really blessed them and, and it just sort of starts to, like all of a sudden something you've been struggling with just starts to get reframed in the right way as you're listening to their testimony, right? That's a demonstration of spiritual power 
that happens within the church as we speak the gospel to one another. The philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal, he was so moved by the demonstration of spiritual power in his life that he sewed a a piece of cloth into his jacket that he wore every day that had these words, which captured the moment when God met him in the gospel and transformed his life. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and scholars, and he was among the greatest. Joy, 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 tears of joy. This is life eternal that they they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. You could just feel he's repeating things because he's just in this moment of absorbing how wonderful and beautiful and powerful it is. May I not fall from this forever. I will not forget your word. Amen. For the rest of his life after that moment, he wore a coat that had that sewn on the inside because that was the moment when God demonstrated his spiritual power. John Wesley um, was sitting in a Bible study and somebody was reading Luther's preface to the book of Romans and later, and, and he just broke, a demonstration of spiritual power. Later he said this, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. That's famous John Wesley statement. His heart was strangely warmed. His heart was strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. (laughs) I love that. John Wesley was all about Methodism and doing everything right. And he finally was broken fully and realized that he couldn't do it all right and he needed the grace of God. And this is the moment when the grace broke through and saved me from the law of sin and death. No, only Christ crucified. These kinds of transformations happen when we speak the gospel, when we speak Christ crucified. And we don't have control over that. We don't need to have control over it because the gospel brings its own power. And it doesn't matter if you're weak or you're trembling. Um, Maybe that's better, in fact, because that means you're out of the way. Last week or the week before, I think it was, I was able to see my... um, one of my, my top five mentors ever. When I finished seminary, went to Hershey, Pennsylvania, and I got to spend time with this uh, amazing pastor. He's now retired, and I got to see him. I surprised him, gave him a big hub. We wept and had lots of joy, and it was just so wonderful. And I remember when one of the lessons he taught me was so powerful. I was new to the church in Pennsylvania there, and uh, this is like a church of 3,000 people, and he was preaching one day, and in the first service, like, uh, it was just a terrible sermon he was preaching I mean it was just bad like it felt really unprepared and it felt like I started to get frustrated I was like did what's going on here did you not prepare this sermon and I was like really confused this is my mentor you know and what and um he comes to the very end of the sermon and just stumbled all the way through and he shares the gospel and he asks if anybody would like to come to faith, put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I looked around the room and hands started going up here, there, all over the place. It was this passage manifest 
It didn't need to be in eloquent words. The gospel brings its own power. And boy, was I humbled in that moment, right? To see this text bringing to life what was dead. To see the power of the gospel bringing to life what was dead in the midst of weakness and fear and trembling. And I would just say, as, as I finish, that we've gone out in weakness and fear and trembling for the last 18 years. <laughs> I don't think we've ever felt we've got this figured out as a church. And I just want to say to us this morning, let's keep doing it. Let's do it more. Let's go out more in the weakness and fear and trembling and words that seem implausible to the world to bring the powerful gospel to bear on people's hearts and on everything else as the implications of the gospel get worked out in our social context, in our lives, in all parts of who we are. That's what we want to do. And let's watch as the power of the gospel brings that transformation. Amen. Lord, we come to you today. Maybe part of today is to be reminded of a powerful truth. Um, As we experience weakness in this coming week, would you work through it and help us not to shy away from the call you've placed on us, but to live into it all the more. That we might have that beautiful privilege of seeing the power of the gospel manifest in and through and among us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.